<clears throat> Let me pray. Father, we come before you now and ask that as we open your word, read it, and seek to understand it, and as I preach this morning, um, you would so use your word that when it does not return to you without accomplishing its work, the work that it has accomplished is one of salvation and sanctification for your people. We pray that every heart in this room and everyone who hears this message would be yielded, that we would recognize um, the truth of what's being said, and that if there are things that come out of my mouth which are not for the purpose of edification, you would uh, bury them and they would be quickly forgotten. Jesus, we want this time to be about you, so we pray that you magnify yourself now through your word, and we ask for it in your name. Amen. It's been a strange Advent series that I've preached, um, in my opinion. We've made our way through three themes. All right, once I get this, I won't have to touch it anymore. <clears throat> beginning uh, with hope and then peace and then joy. And what I've tried to, to do is maintain a Christmassy theme um, without necessarily sticking to Christmassy texts, um, which would be the beginning of uh, the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, or John. Um, and the reason that I've done that is because I refuse to I don't want to say refuse. I, I'm trying really hard not to encourage us to embrace sentimentalism when we have the gospel to embrace instead. And I think that the gospel is woven throughout all of scripture. And if we, if we look at the Christmas season and the Christmas story as <clears throat> kind of the beginning of the delivery of all that God promised elsewhere in scripture, you can go almost anywhere and it'll tell the Christmas story in a sense. So <clears throat> what I've done is set before us uh, the fact that in spite of, uh, not instead of difficulty and sorrow and sadness and trouble, in spite of those things, we can have hope and peace and joy. So today we'll, maybe we'll sew all that up. Again, not in sentimentalism but we'll sew it up in something I think far more authentic, which is love. <clears throat> There's a guy named John Fox who was born 10 days shy of 62 years before me on May 18th, 1918. That would make my birthday May 8th, 1980, just so you know. John was the oldest of three children. He was born in Cincinnati, but he spent most of his early childhood in a, a suburb city of Cincinnati, about 12 miles north, called Wyoming, Ohio. <clears throat> After completing high school, John attended the Ohio State University. However, he did not graduate from the Ohio State University because John wanted to participate in the Reserve Officer Training Corps. Unfortunately, Ohio State did not allow him to participate in ROTC because he had too much melanin in his skin. So John transferred to Wilberforce University in Ohio and joined ROTC there. He graduated with a degree in engineering, <clears throat> which our John Smith 
I believe, graduated with a degree in engineering. John Fox graduated with a degree in engineering and received a commission from the United States Army Second Lieutenant in 1941. You can see how the timing is coming together here. Uh, needless to say, nobody was in the reserves after December 7th of 1941. John was a member of the 92nd Infantry Division, known as the Buffalo Soldiers, which was a segregated um, infantry division from World War I, which was reactivated in October of 1942 and sailed for Italy in 1944. <clears throat> this was the only black infantry division that saw action in World War II in the, in the theater of Europe. John became a forward observer in the 598th Artillery Battalion, supporting the 366th Infantry Regiment. As Allied units clashed with stubborn German defensive positions along the Gothic Line, which was later called the Green Line, um, <clears throat> this, this was a line not quite along the northern Italian border, but through the mountains in the northern third of Italy. John and his com comrades didn't really enter combat for some time after arriving there. So they were, uh, they, they were put into service in things like guard duty or s some kind of a, a service duty. When John did finally get his chance to see combat, it was because he volunteered for a four-day stint over Christmas of 1944. As a forward observer, John's responsibility was to get into a position where he could identify enemy troops and call out over the radio targets for the artillery. So he would give ranges for the artillery, which was well behind uh, friendly lines, to launch their volleys. <clears throat> As a forward observer, John found an observation post in a little village called Sama Colonia on December 23rd, 1944. After being in this village for two days, it became clear that the Germans were on the offensive moving south to overrun the village. As German artillery fire began to descend, the residents and the Allied forces in Sama Colonia attempted to flee south. So the attack is coming from the north. The forces who were in Sama Colonia began to move out of the city, fleeing south. Germans entered the village. John ordered his company to flee, but he stayed behind, choosing to remain in his observation tower, continuing to call out targets for the artillery to barrage. As he stayed and continued calling out targets, eventually the man on the receiving end of John's radio calls realized that the artillery was going to be danger close to John's position. So he said, that's your position, Lieutenant. We'd be dropping shells on your head. John Fox responded, quote, fire it. There's more of them than there are of us. Give them hell. Fox's body was found a few days later when Allied forces retook Sama Colonia. His location was surrounded by nearly 100 enemy dead. 
Today we look at our final theme, which is love. And I don't intend to belabor the point and wow you with all of my insights and observations about love. I'm just going to make three points quickly. So if you're sitting here going, yes, we know what the definition of love, according to you, is James. Don't worry, we're not going there. What I want to do is say that there are features that love has. Did you know it? Did one of you nail it? Okay, good. Uh, features that love has, and if we, if we view love through the lens of the way God loves throughout the story of history in Scripture, you can pick up on these three characteristics. First of all, the love of God, which is a theme woven throughout Scripture, has as its object an undeserving people. I'm going to say it again. The love of God the theme of which is woven throughout all of Scripture, has as its object, the object of the love of God is an undeserving people. Second, the love of God, which is seen more specifically in Bethlehem, in Matthew 1, in Luke 2, and in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the love of God seen in those instances has its expression in the birth of God incarnate. Third, the love of God, which is seen at Calvary in all four Gospels, has as its cost the life of God incarnate. So you've got object, expression, and cost. You tracking? These are the characteristics of love according to the scriptures. Love has an object, love has an expression, and love has a cost. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve uh, have sinned and fallen, they become the object of God's love when he kills an animal in order to make clothing for them, a covering. They are the object. The expression of God's love was a foreshadowing of Calvary. Something had to die in order to make atonement and covering for their sin, and the cost was that animal that perished. Object, expression, and cost. So, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Oh man, all I did was brush it. I've probably been to more weddings than you. As a young man, I made the colossal mistake of opening a business And uh, necessity is the mother of invention. The business kind of morphed from what I had intended it to be into a photography and videography studio, Um, which, uh, you know, of necessity, you're going to do weddings if you're doing photography and videography. So I videoed and edited dozens and dozens of weddings. Nearly all of them featured a reading from 1 Corinthians 13 and... I'm not, this isn't me just trying to be unkind. I'm just stating facts. Nearly every wedding that I videoed or photoed featured a reading from 1 Corinthians 13 and a corresponding butchering of the text in order to cram it into the context of a wedding. Um, I only bring that up because as you're turning there, I want you to know that you're not about to hear a similar homily on the subject of love from 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1. If I speak 
in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move or remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what are we to make of John Fox's sacrifice? The way I told the story, just so that you're clear and you don't blame me, is precisely the way I found it told in not one, not two, not three, but four different historical articles on what happened to John Fox. It's the way most war stories are told. Self-sacrifice appears senseless, in my opinion, when you read it in history textbooks or see it on the History Channel. And there's a reason that self-sacrifice appears senseless when you see it in those frameworks and contexts. Something is always missing. You should know that Sama Colonia has a population right now of either 20 or 21 people. That's as of 2022 data. So if John died to preserve what would eventually become a thriving metropolis, then he most certainly died in vain, right? The village offered no significant tactical advantage to allied forces in Italy and has basically ceased to exist in our day. So why would a man give up his life just to take a few dozen enemies with him the day after Christmas? Did he just not want to live? Did he just hate Nazis that much? Well, here's what the Wikipedia article that you might have already gone to find on John Fox and so many other official reports fail to mention. The Serene Hilltop Village in North Italy's Sergio River Valley had around 400 residents at the time of December 1944. What these residents were doing was starving. They had nothing to eat but chestnuts. There were no roads in and out of Sama Colonia until the 1950s. There were no communication lines until almost 1960. So the way that these starving residents of this little village communicated was with smoke signals. When John Fox's company of 70 American soldiers and 25 uh, partisan Italians arrived and shared their field rations with the starving members of Sama Colonia, friendships were formed. Obviously, right? The residents of Sama Colonia had no hope of rescue. In fact, the paltry commitment by Allied forces of a whopping 70 people from the discarded Buffalo Regiment kind of tells you how meaningful this little village was, tactically. Not meaningful at all. So a few days before the Germans attacked, a group, nobody can say exactly how many, but a group of men disguised as Italian partisans arrived in the village posing as allies. After they gained a foothold in the village, they set fire to the residence where John's company were staying, slaughtering the men as they attempted to escape. It wasn't until that attack had been quelled that German-Austrian soldiers began to move towards Summa Colonia. 
John saw them coming from his post on the second floor of an old Renaissance or Roman watchtower that had been built centuries before. The initial probing attack by the Germany in disguise left many of the 70 American and 25 Italian partisan soldiers in Sama Colonia injured or dead, along with many of the residents. So John Fox's resolve to stay put in his tower, calling targets and generating a smokescreen for the wounded, doubtlessly saved hundreds of lives, only 18 of which were allied. No official record of this heroic act existed until 1997 when John Fox received the Medal of Honor. And the fact was this. The longer the Americans could batter the Germans with artillery, the better chance the residents of Sama Colonia and the remaining Allied forces had to escape. So while the 105 millimeter cannons were going, there was a chance for people to survive. John's widow, Arlene, when she received the Medal of Honor on his behalf, said, quote, we never needed any medals. John just felt that we were as good as anybody else and he was going to prove it, and he did. John Fox didn't just die so that he could have the satisfaction of killing a bunch of enemy along with him or on his way out. He died because he wanted his friends to live. The problem I find with a lot of accounts of heroism on the news and in history is that you see the expression of love. You see the cost of love. And the problem that I find with the Christmas story, and likely the reason as we get older, we tend to get disenchanted with this whole season and this whole notion of Christmas, is we see in the Christmas narrative that you get so often at church, you get the expression of love. And if you've got a decent preacher, you'll even get the cost of love. But love needs three things. It needs expression. It needs cost. But maybe most importantly, it needs an object. The object of John Fox's love was his company of men and the people of Soma Colonia. The expression of his love was that he stayed behind when the rest of them began to escape. And the cost of his love was his own life. So what comes to mind when you hear that, or when you get to the tail end of verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 13, what comes to mind is probably... John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I mean, Jesus himself said that. Certainly that comes to mind when you think about the story that I just told. Jesus says the most powerful expression of love is an act of self-sacrifice. He points out that the object of his own love in this text is undeserving people. Listen, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The people 
who Jesus loves and whom he calls friends are people who ought to be called his servants, right? Which suggests that perhaps our own expressions of love are, are, are probably most valuable when the object is someone from whom we have nothing to gain. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Well, what did that get Jesus? What did his friends do for him? In all of history, what have the people that God calls friends done for God? Nothing. And our love is, unfortunately, often preconditioned, right? We expect to get something in return. We know ultimately what Jesus does to demonstrate his love for us is the very thing that John Fox did for his friends. If you tell the story of John Fox without telling the story of how his company came to be intertwined with the people of Sama Colonia and developed relationships with them, you wind up with a story of senseless martyrdom. Do you see it? Plenty of people died in World War II. Not everybody died quite the way John Fox died, but there were plenty that did. If you tell the story of Jesus being born on Christmas Day without telling the story of humanity for whom he died, similarly, you wind up with a story of senseless martyrdom. If Jesus died for his teachings, it's admirable. If he died for his country, it's valiant. If he died for his family, it's touching. If he died for you and me, it's breathtaking. The object is so critical to us understanding his love. Back in 1 Corinthians 13, moving on to verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see it? Where are you in this description of love? Because I'm impatient and unkind. I'm arrogant and rude. I'm almost always insistent on having my own way. I'm constantly irritable and resentful. I frequently rejoice at wrongdoing. There isn't a bride or groom on earth who should be able to listen to this text without squirming while they're standing there. It's paint by contrast. These are characteristics for sure that we should aspire to, but more to the point, this passage is describing God. God's love. He's not a vengeful, monstrous creator who obliterates his enemies. He is rather peaceable and gentle without ignoring without pretending, without just covering up wrongdoing. He's able to uphold righteousness without eradicating sinners. How could that be? How can God simultaneously love us and not rejoice at wrongdoing? And let me just illustrate by contrast what happens in our day and age. What happens in our day and age is if you have the colossal gall to say sex outside of marriage is wrong, 
And that goes for homosexual sex outside of marriage. And oh, by the way, marriage as defined in the Bible is between a man and a woman. You're not loving. Well, I'm sorry for not being loving, but my Bible says love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And immediately, we're in a quandary, aren't we? we? We want people to know that we care for them. We want people to know we don't hate them. We want people to know we're not afraid of them. We want people to know that we are a friend to sinners. We're just not going to wink at sin and pretend like it's okay. We're certainly not going to rejoice in it. And it's difficult for us. And we're sinners. How much more difficult must it be from a human perspective for God, who is perfect, to not rejoice at wrongdoing, yet be patient and long-suffering and gentle. Well, let me take you to Bethlehem right now. It's a quiet village. If you don't know, it's about six miles south of Jerusalem. It's home of Rachel's tomb, and it's where David was anointed king over Israel. In the fields to the east, you can find the place where Ruth gleaned and caught Boaz's eye. It's the home of around 700 souls, and none of them were people of note. Mary and Joseph are here because of government overreach. On a cold night, probably in September, the town's population is swollen to over 1,000 people. That's a conservative estimate. They're mostly travelers who've been ordered to the town of their birth for a census, There's no room at any inn, and Mary, now fully pregnant, lays on a straw bed in a cave where animals are stowed for the night. She begins to feel the pains of childbirth at the worst possible time. I can't imagine the stress, but I know how I would face it if I were in Joseph's shoes. I would think, well, the baby is coming. And thanks to stupid Caesar, the baby won't be born in the comforts of my house that I built. It most certainly was not a silent night. Animals grunting, defecating, and chewing their cud is nothing Norman Rockwelly. If I'm Joseph, I put my head in my hands and wonder how badly I've screwed up by dragging Mary and obeying the law of the land to this point. The birth pains get worse as evening gets colder. Joseph does what he can to make Mary comfortable, but he's a carpenter. He's blue collar. We're not good at this stuff. There's blood on the ground. Mary is crying out in agony. The curse is in full effect as the pains of childbirth are magnified by the misery of laying on the hard floor in the freezing cold. No angels are present now. No doctors, no priests, no midwife, no sanitary blankets, no formula, no painkillers, and no pillows. And as the minutes stretch on and the pain gets worse, the temperatures are creeping ever downward. The misery crescendos with the birth of this infant that Joseph didn't even father. He takes the baby, wipes him off as best he can, hands him to Mary, who wraps him in layers of cloth, swaddling him tightly and holding him close. This is how the love of God can be displayed. 
This is how righteousness and mercy can coexist. This is how law and grace can meet and embrace. This is how patience and justice can walk hand in hand. This is how sinners and God can have fellowship. This baby, born in obscurity 2,000 some odd years ago, is the Son of God, sent to us as a gift, sent to us for redemption, sent to us for rescue from slavery, reconciliation for all those who defied God. The birth of our Savior was the precursor to the most profound, breathtaking, world-altering act of love in all of history because this Jesus the very Son of God who's born on Christmas Day was born on Christmas Day so that he could die. Not in an act of senseless martyrdom, but in an act of love. Amen? He did it for you to rescue you, to save you, to be in relationship with you. Would you think about that for just a moment? Now, if you think you're pretty wonderful, you're not all that surprised to hear that God would send his son to die for you. But I assure you, it has nothing to do with the fact that you're wonderful. And if you, like me, have this nagging, constant understanding of exactly how worthless you are in light of who God is and what he's commanded, then it might be helpful for just a moment for you to stop and consider. Did Jesus Christ come in flesh? Was he born on a cold night in September in Bethlehem or not? And if he was, then was he sent and did he come and was he born and did he live and did he die for you or just for everybody else? Oh, I'm a sinner. I'm vile. I'm disgusting. Yes! Thank you. You are. So am I. So was Peter. So was Paul. So was Joseph. So was Mary. I mean, he had to die so we could have hope, peace, joy. He had to, he had to die and in order to do that. He had to first be born on Christmas. He had to die so that sinners could be objects of his love. This is why Christmas matters. Oh, it's a pagan holiday reclaimed by the early church. Okay, whatever. I'm, I'm good with it. We set aside a season every year to remember that Jesus Christ was born so that he could pour his love out on people who most certainly did not deserve it. Glory to God. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.